Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Super excited about this episode of the Windy City Podcast. Thank you for checking out the podcast. Really appreciate it. Sam Macho, former Bears linebacker, is with me today. And what an incredible job Sam is doing off the field. Now, he's a free agent right now, played for the Bucks a little bit last year. But he went into the Austin neighborhood and went to a liquor store, Belmonte Cut Rate Liquors, which looks exactly how it sounds, and Sam brought in the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, he had the Mayor Lori Lightfoot, he had the Police Superintendent David Brown, and he raised $500,000, so they could convert the liquor store into a food mart after, you know, he's looking at the Austin neighborhood and saying basically, oh, there's no food for these people who deserve the best in life. They don't even have a supermarket to go to. So he brought in Jonathan Taves and Malcolm Subban from the from the Blackhawks and Mitch Trubisky and Charles Leno from the Bears. The White Sox had Lucas Giolito. Max Struess from the Bulls showed up. And a former Northwestern Wildcat, now with the New Orleans Saints, Austin Carr, Israel Adonage uh, was there as well as they all wanted to contribute to some serious, serious change. And uh, Sam leading it is just awesome. He's been in... A, a different, a, a million different things as far as bringing people together, but this is just his latest. Uh, so looking forward to talking to uh, Sam today. Also, uh, I caught up with Alicia Newman, who I had never heard of. Uh, that's because I'm not following track and field closely. Uh, but Alicia's got a great story. She's uh, in her mid 20s, is the greatest pole vaulter in the history of Canada. She's trying to jump five meters. I think. If you stick around and listen to Alicia, you'll at least learn a lot about how an elite athlete got to where they got to and the level of pushing that came from her parents. And also, uh, she was bullied as a kid, too, and turned that into motivation, kind of the negative into a positive. Uh, And speaking of that, as we're having a lot of conversation right now, and uh, this is our first ever episode where, at the very back end here, I'm bringing on the rabbi. That's right. Uh, Rabbi David Wolpe. He joined me on WGN Radio. I was hosting on Saturday, or Sunday, make that. I was hosting on Saturday, too, but this was from Sunday. And David Wolpe is incredibly inspirational. And why he, why I found my way to him was that he reached out to talk to Stephen Jackson, who had doubled down on Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitic comments, which, of course, Deshaun's apologized, and Stephen has pointed out and apologized too, and met with David Wolpe that he 
doesn't hate anyone and all that type of stuff. Although Steven's words were kind of particularly harsh because he doubles down after Deshaun and says, well, you know, he's just speaking the truth, which of course Deshaun Jackson wasn't speaking the truth. He didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And I, it just pains me, right, when African Americans and Jewish people are against each other, at least for a moment in time, you would think that there would be, you know, some good understanding between those two groups. And I don't want to limit understanding either to just those two groups, right? We can hopefully all understand each other. But that one uh, was particularly painful. It made me think back, actually, to being a Jewish guy growing up, North Suburbs, a lot of privilege, and I wasn't experiencing any anti-Semitism or any racism. But there were kind of always these microaggressions that would pop up. I remember uh, being at the University of Iowa, and my good friend uh, who was at my, my wedding about, I don't know, however, however many months ago, he comes, and we're still great friends today. But we were playing Sega hockey, or he was, and I walk into their room, which was an amazing room, had uh, th the 30-pack of Old Style, that was lined up in boxes all along the wall, Jordan posters, and then some guy from the middle of Iowa who had this deep fat fryer that made the kitchen stink to all hell. But I walk in there, and they're playing Sega, and he's like, oh, that was a Jew goal. And I'm sitting there, hey, I'm the Jewish guy here. Should I say something? But I'm thinking to myself, I want this guy to like me, and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So I'm not going to say anything, just going to leave the room and go do something else with my night. No courage, right? Not a whole lot of willing to put two feet down and say, Hey, buddy, Mark Carmen here. 1986 Bar Mitzvah. Alongside Matt Meadows at Bethel. Did an amazing half Torah. I'm not down with the Jew goal comments. But I... Just didn't want to do it. And there's a bunch of other times where, you, where I've heard that type of stuff. And it's not, you know, it's not anything close to what so many people have experienced. But it's also, you know, looking in the mirror, like places where I could step up and be a part of a conversation and make things better that I didn't do. So that leads me into the props of what Sam Acho is doing and will continue to do and looking in the mirror where I can personally be better, which I've touched on on the podcast a couple of times here, where, yeah, if I'm in a spot where things are not being said in the right way and I have an opinion on it, well, time to open up your mouth. I think, I think that's the least we can all do as uh, being at least a small part of change. So thanks for putting us on today. we got a three-parter for you with Alicia and Sam to start off, and then the rabbi on the back end. It's a three-part edition of the Windy City Podcast. Sam Acho right now. Always great to catch up with my man Sam Ocho, who's got a book coming out, uh, and hopefully an NFL team to play for here in, in 2020. You, you getting nervous on that, Sam, before we get to the book? How are you feeling about the upcoming season? I don't even know if you want to play uh, with everything, of course, that's going on here. Scary times. Yeah, I'm excited. Obviously, excited about a couple of things, right? So my book, Let the World See You, uh, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. You can find that at SamMacho.com, or SamMachoBook.com, excuse me, pumped about that. And excited to see what happens with the season. I think 
nobody really knows. Football, it looks like football is going to be played, but nobody really knows. And a lot of free agents, people in general, people who have signed contracts are waiting on their signing bonus because of physicals, et cetera. And so um, there's a lot of eagerness to see what will happen in this season. But if given an opportunity as things stands right now, you would be wanting to play? Yeah, there's definitely a desire there. I think it has to be the right fit. Um, there are some teams I've talked to, and we're kind of waiting and seeing what's going to happen next. Uh, but for me, I think some of the biggest passions are not only on the field, but stuff we've been doing off the field as well. Yeah, yeah. Are, are the Bears one of those options, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously love my time in Chicago. And so uh, played here for four years, love the team, love the city. Obviously played in Tampa Bay last year as well, and have been talks with them, been in talks with them as well. And so uh, love Chicago, uh, love Tampa Bay, and and uh, like I said, would love to play, but at the same time, uh, I think I've realized this last season of life that I'm more than just a football player. Well, there's no doubt. And let, let's talk about your book here and, and uh, really everything you're doing. Let the world see you. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about emotions and not bearing everything and letting people know the real you, which I think, you know, I think a lot of people, football player, non-football player, you can relate to that and, you know, wanting to be liked and not, not wanting to be considered quote unquote weak, where actually when you're showing the motions, that's actually a strength. So what's your journey around this? How, how would you boil that down? Yeah. I mean, I would say for me, it's been tough because I know for me, I'm a, I'm super emotional and I love people. I love hanging out and talking and just getting to know people. And in my line of work, that's not always the most common thing. You're in your bubble and you've got your guys and your teammates where you're not supposed to interact too much with fans and be too approachable. And, and I realized, well, that's not me. Like the real me wants to hang out all day with, with fans and with friends. And, and, and for me, even with this book, I think anybody who reads this book, they'll realize that like, if you pick this book up, you'll understand what it's like to be free. People who, who, have, who are tired of pretending and tired of faking people who are just sick and tired of, putting on those masks. I think people who want to be free will benefit from reading this book. How'd you get the motivation to write it, Sam? Where, where, I mean, was there an epiphany one day? Like, all right, this is it. I'm going in, I'm writing a book. I mean, what, what, what motivated you at the end of the day to actually sit down and do it? Yeah, for me, it was really this, this realization that writing and encouraging people is something that I've been suppressing for a really long time. I remember just understanding that, yes, there is an idea that you have to fit in certain molds, but that, that's not true. A lot of times people will shame you or guilt you. You feel shame or guilt or doubt. And I'm like, man, let's just get rid of all that. Let's be real, right? Whether we're crying, we're laughing, we're joking, let's be real. And I think that's what people will get when they read this book. They'll, they'll understand that when you're you, uh, people around you benefit. The freedom that you have, you allow, once you're, you're free, you allow other people to be free as well. Yeah, it's an incredible invitation to be yourself right there. I love it. So uh, let, let's talk about the Black Lives Matter movement right now. And if we date it back just to uh, the tragic day that George Floyd was murdered, what from that point forward have you been maybe most encouraged by? And on the, other, on the flip side, like what have you been uh, most disappointed by? If, you, if there's anything that you, you know. Yeah, I just think. I know for me, it was really cool seeing everybody care. Here's what I mean by that. I remember when I, when I came back to Chicago a few weeks ago, and that's when a lot of people had just started protesting over the murder of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and even the Amy Cooper situation in Central Park. Yeah. 
I came and my heart was hurting. I was in tears wondering, man, what can I do? And so I reached out to a couple of pro athletes from the different teams in Chicago, the Bears, the Bulls, the Cubs, the Blackhawks and the White Sox and guys showed up. Everybody wanted to do something. And so we had about two guys like Noah's Ark, two by two, two players from each team. Oftentimes it was one one black, one white player. And we came and we just listened, went to the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, excuse me. We just sat and we listened. And what we heard is that there's a community who needs our help, not just the help of pro athletes, the help of everyone. We need, they need our time. They need our investment. Uh, they need our, our, our voice. And that's what they need to, to really see change happen. Yeah. And I, I, the scene last week where you bring the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, and you got the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, you've got yourself, you've got, uh, you got athletes from, I think every team was there and you guys are knocking down a liquor store and building a grocery store to put a, a food uh, option in a, in a, in what was a desert. Uh, that's as concrete as, as you can do. I, I, I don't know, like you're, you've set this whole thing up and you've got all these people of power around you. What was it like just being in there and, and kind of it's, there's a responsibility to it and you want to be yourself. Like I'm, I'm imagining, trying to imagine what it had to feel like with you, a lot of pressure and trying to enjoy it at the same time. Yeah, that was the, that day. Uh, Mark was the most fun I've had in years. That was the most fun because it was what I was meant to do. That's what, that's what I talk about in that book and let the world see you. This is me. I love bringing people together. I love working towards justice in all uh, facets of life. I love I'm working with people who are trying to make a change. And I, I play sports too. I'm a pro football player in the NFL. And so this is just all of me coming together. And that's what I talk about in the book. It's when you are you, three things happen. Number one, God gets the glory. Number two, the people around you benefit. Number three, the world around you thrives. And that's what we saw last week. We saw not just me, we saw Roger Goodell, the mayor, the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department. We saw 14 pro athletes from all the different teams. Some not even located in Chicago. Some people are just from Chicago. They play for the Panthers or, or, or the Rams. They came together to make a change. And that's why, um, it's like I said, it's sammashowbook.com you'll learn this freedom that comes. There's freedom. There's no pressure. There's no fear. There's no doubt. There's no shame. All the experience is joy and freedom. And those other emotions are real. They are real. They don't have to consume you. Yeah. I was uh, watching a conversation with your, your brother who does a podcast, uh, Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man, Emmanuel Acho, and you, you retweeted uh, one of them where he's, he's reading uh, emails and he's trying to explain uh, – you know, his experience and, and also trying to like help people, help white people as to, you know, what they can do. Um, and maybe, you know, you're getting that, that question a lot. I, I see like a lot of people, as you're saying, like who, who want to jump in and, and help. And then I also worry like that it's going to just kind of go away and they'll, we'll all show up at a, at a protest. But then when it actually comes to, you know, the rubber meeting the road, like you did last week, we're, we're going to come up short. I, I'm, I'm curious, like, is that something that, that's rattling around in you as a concern? And like, and what would you say is like, hey, you know, how do we, how do we best keep this going? So there's a, some real, uh, you know, tangible change that comes from this time. Yeah, well, I think the, to answer your second question, as far as how to keep it going, I think number one, you have to educate yourself. There's a couple of really good books out there, uh, in addition to mine, right? But there's a couple other books out there that you can help you educate yourself on, on what African-Americans have gone through in this country. There's a book called White Fragility. Um, there's a, there is a, that, that I think is a really good book. Um, there's a book called Divided by Fate. There's so many different books um, that talk about 
things that you probably didn't learn in school. And here's what I mean by that. I went to the number one rated private school in the United States, number one in the whole country. And it's predominantly white. And in, those, in my classes, I never learned about the Tulsa riots of 1921. How oh, there is this neighborhood that was thriving, a black neighborhood that was thriving, and it was essentially burned to the ground by white people who didn't like it. I didn't learn about that. I didn't learn about uh, how the 13th Amendment, yes, slavery was abolished, but there was an exception. I didn't, le- I didn't learn about the exception in the 13th Amendment that says it's abolished except for uh, if you've been convicted of a felony. I didn't learn about the black codes that were put in. These are laws that were put in place specifically targeting African-American communities to get them back into jail. People talk about it, the new Jim Crow. Uh, I didn't learn about the, the, the school-to-prison pipeline. You don't learn about these things. So number one, I would say educate yourself. Uh, number two, I would say to empathize, really to empathize with people who have gone through a different life experience than you have. So I think those are probably the two most important things. And once you get that foundation, number, th- number three would be to advocate, to speak up. Right, use your voice, use your platform to speak up and to speak up for change. You know, we talk about the issue of of, of where our country stands and, and 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 why it seems like we're so divided and why sometimes um, you need protest. Because to your point, it's not either or; it's both and. You must protest because the only way you can have your voice heard is to protest. It seems like black people have been saying, "Hey, we need help, we need help, we need help," and no one's listening. Africa, uh, the America is thirteen percent black. 30% of the population is saying, help, help. And the other, maybe it's over 50% or so white, is ignoring it, right? No one's listening. And so finally protests happen and now people start to listen. And so it's both and. It's not just protesting. It's protesting and speaking out and making change. It's not just posting on social media. It's posting on social media and showing up for said protest. Yeah, I, I had not heard of, of, of White Fragility until a couple of weeks ago, and so I started reading it. And what actually hit home with me the most was, you know, the quote-unquote progressive white person. Like, that, in theory, could be the worst white guy because you sort of – you're and I talked to Kenny Smith uh, last week, and he's like, sometimes, you know, white people, don't, you know, they'll see racism, like, right in your face. Like, oh, there's a Confederate flag. And a guy, there was a video that made a, was making its way around the internet today where the guy's got a noose hanging off of the truck. And, it, I mean, it's as, as vile as you can get. But then there's the undercurrent where you're, you know, oh, I've had all this privilege that I might not want to acknowledge because I sort of like my position in society. And, you don't, and it's like, oh, I, I don't want to give that up. That's been sweet for me. But then it's like, oh okay, well, maybe I could actually have some confidence in myself that I can compete without the privilege. But it, it was really, um, you know, and I, and I, you know, for me, I just think that it's, there's always like microaggressions going on. And for white people, myself, to, to actually speak up in those moments uh, is huge. It doesn't have to be some big protest. This is me talking in my own interview here, Sam, but that's what I got out of it. I don't, I, you're nodding your head. Yes, it seems to make sense. No, I love it. I love it because it doesn't take a lot. It just takes you using your circle of influence. Maybe it's just your family, right? Raise your kids with an awareness of prejudice and say, hey, this happens and we don't want this to happen down the line. My brother did did one of his uh, uncomfortable conversations with with a family who, who said, I don't, I saw this 30 years ago with Rodney King. I don't want this to happen 30 years from now. Let's make that change. And so I think it's simple. It's, it's speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. It's, it's saying, you know what? I understand that I, I'm not saying I haven't worked hard, but the 
my, my race, my, the color of my skin hasn't contributed to making it harder for me. It's just acknowledging that yeah. and say, okay, what can I do to help? Yeah. I, I want to pivot here just a second. Like I saw Charles Barkley saying that, Hey, you know, I think we might be missing the message here. Like who's kneeling, who's standing name changes, what names we're putting on the back of the jerseys uh, at the NBA bubble and, you know, Washington, the football franchise is a huge story today that they're finally going to move on, which they should have done a long time ago, but they're finally getting to it. Do, do you feel that way? Because like, okay, sweet, like whatever they're going to be, the Washington whatevers. But like at the end of the day, that doesn't actually change anyone's life, right? Like it's just, it, 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 yes, it should move along and then, okay, and now what? Like that, that right? Does that make sense? Yeah, but it, but it, but it does though. It, I think it does change people's life, whether it's talking about um, – because there's power in a name. Yeah. There's power in a name. Think about the, the names that certain groups of people were called, not only black, we're talking about Jewish people or, or Asian people, um, Native Americans, the name, or Hispanic people, the name, almost everybody but white people got called names, right? <laughs> but uh, white people got called names too. But the names that people are called, it means something. There's power in that. It's almost like this position of, I get to call you this. And this is what I'm going to name you, even though it's not really my name. And so I think that is movement. That is progress, changing names, um, changing language, changing the way you see things. So taking out some of that bias that you don't even know you have, I think there's a huge amount of importance to that. Yeah. And by the way, for you Irish people and you Italians out there saying, hey, I was called X, Y, and Z, and the Jewish people were, you know, you, you, I, I, we, we see you, we got you. Last, last week, and so I'm a Jewish guy, and um, you know I, I've always felt like like African Americans and Jewish people we should we should be able to you know at least have some commonality here. Uh, so and then seeing what you know what happened with Deshaun Jackson and then Stephen Jackson last week, I, I I wasn't like on a level of one to ten, Sam. I was mad like a, about a one point one. Like I put it as just like ignorance, and I don't I didn't think there was any real. Um, you know, hatred behind it. And Sean's, you know, he's apologized. He's meeting with a Holocaust survivor and all of it. Um, so, but I, and I, I'm not exactly sure where to go from here other than the fact it's like, if you are going to be in your platform, like being educated just seems like a, a it's, it's, there's a responsibility that goes along with it, which I think is, it's, it's, it also feels like it's asking a lot, but you know, it seems like it's, it's a huge part of it if you want to really have your message get out there correctly. Yeah. And it's not, it's everybody. That's, that's the real conversation that needs to be had. We all need to educate ourselves. Yeah. First, second grade, I went to a school in a predominantly black neighborhood and I learned about people talk about the black national anthem. We sang that every day. So I knew about that. I learned about uh, black heroes, people uh, who, who helped change this, this world for the better who were black. I switched schools. I never learned about that. And so no, no I don't care what your platform is. We all need to go and educate ourselves. Right. Go check out my book, sammachobook.com. Let the world see you, hear about that story. Go check out other books. Where you can educate yourself on, on American history through an African-American lens. Yeah. What, what, what do you think the NFL's role is right now? Like, you know, part of me just feels like, look, if Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job here in the fall, then, then, then something's still incredibly off. And I, I'm assuming, and I think rightly, that, that he wants to play. But more so than that, like when you have your conversations with Roger Goodell, what, what are you, what are you hoping you'll see? Yeah, I think, I think at least what I'm going for in my community and ideally for the world is substantive change, real change. 
So that means, yes, statues coming down. Yes, names being changed. But it's investing in our community. It's, 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 and people always say, well, it's not, don't just throw your money. But money is something that needs to be put into communities. Your money, your time, your voice. So I see the NFL getting behind organizations that are on the ground, in the dirt, making change, and seeing that change happen nationwide. Will it bother you if Kaepernick's not in the league this year? Yeah, I think to your point, Mark, you talked about um, you talked about the name change and how well it's just a name, right? And I think about that. Yeah, if Cap has a job, does that change anything? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Right? Maybe him having a job. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. And so I think that, um, as you mentioned earlier, just the bigger picture of of what does real change look like. I'll be honest, I did not know about uh, Rabbi David at Sinai Temple before today. I was going through Instagram and seeing what Stephen Jackson uh, was doing after what he had learned after uh, his comments, and I saw that he had connected with uh, the rabbi that we have on the line right now. And so I'm really interested in hearing what uh, you have to say, Rabbi Walpi. What, what, uh, first of all, like, what was your reaction uh, when you saw the comments from Deshaun Jackson and signed a d- double down by Stephen Jackson, and then now here's a gentleman reaching out to you uh, to get some information, be in the conversation, which is a great thing. But I'm curious, like, what was your initial reaction? So, um, first of all, I grew up in Philadelphia. So I've been a lifelong Eagles fan, <laughs> even though I've lived in Los Angeles now for, for some 30 years. And when I saw that Deshaun Jackson had said it, it was doubly awful. Um, and my first reaction, honestly, was that there, there is this strain in some parts of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and uh, it uh, originates in part from uh, Louis Farrakhan that is deeply anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. And, uh, and I was just saddened to see that he said it. I was pretty sure that it came from a, a, a real ignorance of the issues and what was involved because this sounded like something that was repeated foolishly and thoughtlessly and then when i saw that stephen jackson had doubled down on it i thought you know now now we've got a we're going to have a snowball effect and so i was very happy when actually one of my congregants said i know stephen jackson and um i think that i could get him to talk to you would you be interested and i said of course i'd be interested because i always think that if you have a chance to talk to somebody then you actually get a chance to find out whether this is a deeply held belief or something that they foolishly repeat without knowledge. That's huge and a very, I think, important delineation, right? Like, okay, are you just an anti-Semitic, no help, nothing matters, this is what you think, and however you got there, that's, you know, I'm not going to do a deep dive on that, but that's where you are and you're not moving. Right. Or is this someone that's just flat out ignorant? So what, what was, and, and Stephen has posted a million things saying, I, I have, I have no hate for anyone, but then he also was kind of doubling down on, well, this is the truth. So right. what, what, what was your conversation with him like, and what were you trying to explain? 
So I, I first wanted him to know that 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 what he said was foolish. Um, so, I mean, the idea, first of all, the Rothschilds control all the banks. It's just all you have to do is look at <laughs> look at who owns the banks. You think the Rothschilds own the banks in China and Japan and India um, and also that the Rothschild family hasn't been Jewish for a long time, but that's a separate issue. Um, and actually, just for the purpose of your listeners, I just out of interest, I Googled who is the wealthiest family in the world. It's the, it's <laughs> the Walmart guys, the Waltons, um, who are very far from being Jewish. Uh, and there are lots of examples like that, but that's not something that I assumed he ever thought about or explored or... He just heard somewhere the Rothschilds control all the banks, and it made sense to blame all the ills of the world on somebody. So I first pointed that out to him, and, in the, and the most, uh, I think, useful and beneficial part of the entire conversation was when he said, yeah, I realize it's a stereotype like saying all blacks are gangsters. And I thought, okay, so he started to understand that these stereotypes take hold and they do great damage and they're easy to believe if you don't take the time to actually explore it. And that was really what I was looking for was, is there a chance here both for me to listen? Because after all, I don't know about his life experience either. It's not like I'm just there to talk. Um, and also to let him know that the Jewish world is very different from his stereotype. As I'm listening to you talk right now, Rabbi, I, like there's a certain like I can just feel a little pain coming over me. Just the it's painful, like how little we know each other. Something along those lines, right? And, right. And yes. and and it's just and I and I also appreciate that. Okay, great. We're having a lot of conversations right now that we haven't had. And I'm looking at myself here, Rabbi. Like <laughs> I grew up in privileged northern suburbs here, and. I didn't experience any real anti-Semitism or racism. However, I would always hear right. comments. If it was fairly popular back in, you know, in my college years, you'd walk in and you'd be playing video games and somebody would say something like, that's a Jew goal or, and, and, right. and, and I, it's not doing any real damage to me, but I also didn't have the courage to say anything, say, Hey, uh, Hey, Buddy, my my good friend who was at my wedding, like I'm a Jewish guy, and, and I'd prefer that you did not use that as a term for a cheap goal, right. you know. But I but I didn't right. do it. I exactly. you know, I I just I just sat back and and kind of was like, eh, you know, whatever, no no big deal. These things happen rather than being in the fight, um, and not even the well, fight, right? So yeah. So what's your reaction to that? I'm really glad you said that, and I think that that's a, it's a perfect. What you just said is the experience of so many people who encounter prejudice, whether against their own group or others, which is it's so much easier not to say anything. And most of us don't. It's really embarrassing to be the person who always speaks up. Um, but part of this was that I think um, from your own group, and this was part of the dialogue, was he was getting emails saying, don't let that Jew off the hook, you know, don't bow down to him, don't listen to him. Don't apologize to him, you know, stand tall. They, they are this and they are that. He was getting a lot of those. And I, on the other hand, was getting, he won't tell you the truth. He's really an anti-Semite. Anti-Semitism is all through the black community. Don't let him off the hook. In other words, sometimes it's also from your own side that they won't, that the, the grip is so tight 
that they won't give someone else the opportunity to be different, to listen and to learn. And so um, it's, it's sort of a double, uh, it's like all the human passions come to play here. There's embarrassment you don't want to speak up when you hear prejudice. And also there's anger that you don't believe that the other person could really be okay because we other each other a lot. And the only way to change that is through dialogue and through discussion. I thought that's why it was so beautiful when Julian Edelman um, taped this brief uh, plea to Deshaun Jackson. And he said, you know, when the pandemic is over, if you come with me to the Holocaust Museum, I'll go with you to the African-American uh, Museum uh, in Washington. And so I repeated the same thing to Stephen Jackson. I've been to the African-American Museum, but, I, but I, I'm sure it's a different experience to go with somebody who's, who's, you know, whose life is wrapped up in the black experience in America. So if we did that more, if we actually were ready to listen more, it would, I mean, it would be a better place. But right now we're all yelling at each other on Twitter. Right. And I really appreciate the underlining that he's getting it from his side. You're getting it from your side. And I'm sitting here like, look, Jewish people and black people should really have a pretty good understanding of each other on some level. I don't, we don't experience, you know, we can walk around and, and, and and walk in any store and nobody's going to necessarily know that we're quote unquote Jewish and we're not going to be treated differently. However, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities there, and that's what like there's us that that's what makes it just incredibly disappointing when these two when 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 Jews and blacks are at each other. It's like, well, hold on a second here. There's a lot of common ground. Can we can we not see this? Like, are you aware of the Holocaust? Are you aware of my life every single day? Right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of yep. stuff here where we can bond, but yet, and I also think that people don't on both sides clearly right now they don't identify their for lack of a better word, their own racism or their own, you know, their own pr- prejudice right. that, that, that they just want to put on the other person and, and they're missing themselves, if that makes sense. And that's, it, it makes perfect sense. And that's why I was sure to say to him, not that I was angry by what he said, but that I was hurt. Because when you're hurt, you don't come from a position of I'm, I'm challenging you. When, you. when you say to somebody that you're hurt, what you're saying to them is your words have power. So you're not trying to make them powerless. And that's much better than saying I'm angry um, because then you set up an opposition that shouldn't be there. As you say, look, the Jewish people in the lifetime of people who are still alive lost a third of all the Jews in the world. I mean, that's unfathomable. And, and African-Americans have been in the country that enslaved them. Um, it's not like, you know, a Jew can say this happened to us over in Europe. But for an African-American, it happened here, where you live. And so they're two different kinds of pain, but they're both unfathomable. They're both um, so deep that, as you say, we ought to be able to reach out over our differences and to say, you know, what you say here hurts me, what, what he said there hurts me. It's why we put up a banner on our synagogue that said Sinai Temple stands with our African-American brothers and sisters against racism. And and I I think that it was a, a part of the reason um, that he agreed to talk to me was because the congregant said, look, it's not like 
this guy came to this yesterday. We put this banner up on Juneteenth because we thought it was important for people to know that the Jewish people and black people should understand each other and and help each other. I'm thinking, too, about... uh as far as like African-American people living in the U S and you know, one, one of my uh, Jewish friends who lives in Israel and he's in the hotel industry and he travels all throughout Europe. And he says the place where he feels the most welcome is Germany, which I find that very yes. interesting. Uh, and, and, and you say, yes, yeah, so you've heard that before, which is what's your break. I've, I've had that experience. I've traveled also through Europe and it's remark. Germany has to a much greater extent than any other country come to grips with its past. Um, it, it, and, and that's not true. I mean, that's not true in Austria. Uh, it's not true in Hungary. It's not true in all these other places where there, were, uh, there was the wholesale destruction of Jews. But Germany has really tried. Um, they have mandatory Holocaust education. They really try to come to grips with, with what happened in their own country. And I think on some level, as we're having this conversation, it, it's it's a pathway uh, for the U.S. as we as we're trying to figure out should these statues stay around and what should happen here and what should the education be and wh- and if we really take a look at where we're at today and where we want to go, to me that seems like part of it. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, how you how as a country you um, memorialize your past says an awful lot about your character. And so I think that it's important for Americans to to be sort of as one in in both the pride of America and also in being honest about what we've done over the past couple hundred of years. I mean, part of what part of what I think makes America great is that we do have the strength to confront our own shortcomings or we should have that strength. Um, so I, I believe that these kinds of dialogues and and this discussion on your show that's an important part of it right and i i think it's just very important to underline we are a great country a tremendous country that's not perfect and so no one is Uh, how you where are you going today where are you going tomorrow How, how are you looking at it and 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 you can there's you can take out some guilt or whatever, but at some point it's also kind of pointless. Like what what's the next move? What how did you how did your time with with the Stephen Jackson and Rabbi before you have to get on out of here? Well, so I uh, we agreed that when this is over, we will go to Washington together and go to the two museums and uh, that we'll continue talking. And I think that it was from the reaction. The reaction was overwhelmingly more than positive. Um, grateful and positive and so on. And I think that uh, that despite the fact that there will always be people who will prefer anger to reconciliation, um, I, I think that it was a very good discussion and I hope that it continues. And uh, I hope that others will take a cue from this to initiate similar conversations. Well, I really appreciate you being on today, and it was it was super uplifting. And I, I hope that everybody else has the same reaction, uh, or 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 if not, that's fine too. We can have that discussion three one two. Thank you, and let me let yeah. me just say, if they want to see the discussion, it's about fifteen twenty minutes. It's on my Instagram, which is David J Wolpe, or Stephen Jackson's Instagram, which I think is Stack Five. Um, but it's on Instagram, or you just Google it, David Wolpe and Stephen Jackson. I'm sure you'll come up with it because. The internet is the repository of all things. Uh, yeah. and thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, and if you want to 
Check out the rabbi's uh, temple. It's Sinai Temple, S-I-N-A-I Temple.org. And you can follow him on, on Facebook as well, Twitter, at Rabbi, W-O-L-P-E. Uh, rabbi, thank you so much, David. I, I really, really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Take care. So I get a lot of emails from different parts of the sports world, and I got one last week promoting Alicia Newman, who's a pole vaulter out of Canada. She holds the Canadian world record. And her story was super interesting, as uh, her young years were not exactly pleasant. So let's bring Alicia into the conversation today and have her explain uh, what she was dealing with as a kid and how she turned that into a huge positive. Yeah, for me, it was definitely, um, I got bullied tons when I was in high school and elementary school, and the only let go and the only time I wasn't bullied during the day was at gymnastics. So I was one of those people that I constantly um, got better so that I could be at gym, you know. I knew if I was the best gymnast or, you know, in the elite group, I would do half days at school. So it started out that way. And then now with pole vault, um, I'm like turning the impossible to possibilities. No Canadian has ever jumped higher than me. Um, and I keep wanting to raise the bar as, hard, as high as I can so that I can keep, I'm put Canada on the map for women's pole vault. And it's also a very, very new event. If you look at it, I mean, women's pole vault didn't come out until 2000. So we've really only been in four Olympics. And women's pole vault is pretty freaking awesome. So when you sit there and, and you're part of that group of women that are so powerful and so incredible people inside and out, you want to do nothing but keep jumping high and raising the bar as high as you can. So I think we put a lot of pressure on each other. And... I'm, I'm motivated to do something and inspire people to be the best at whatever they do. And that's kind of where my motivation comes from. I don't want to just, you know, go out and bring home medals. I want people to go after their goals and their dreams to be the best they can be. I love that. And <laughs> kids are mean. I don't want to make you go back there, but I'm super interested. Like, wh- why, why were they bullying you? What was the, what was the excuse that they used? Oh, well, I have to thank a little bit of my mom for that. You know, I had I had braces, I had glasses, and a mushroom cut all at once. So <laughs> I was kind of, uh, I was all, you know, the whole package. <laughs> um, but no, and, and I also was a very, you know, athletic kid. Like, I wasn't, um, I, I, it was weird. Like, when I was with my sister, we would dress up a lot. We would wear a lot of princess dresses. But when I was at recess, I wanted to be all the boys at recess. Any guy that wanted to race against me, I never thought that they would beat me ever. Um, and I think I just was raised with two brothers. They were very, very, um, our family is very competitive at everything we do. And we push each other. And so when I was at school, I think people didn't really like that I was like, you know, I'm going to beat you whether you're a boy or a girl. And people didn't really like that. So I think now where I am, it's, it's exactly a quality you want to have being a professional athlete. But as a little kid, you know, everyone's just trying to have fun. And, and I maybe took it too serious. <laughs> no, it was not your fault. I won't let you say that. And I'm guessing that those boys that were bullying you back then probably want to date you now. So I think... Hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> right? It's a little sweet revenge right there. 
Uh, tell me, tell me just a little, tell me a little bit more about your mom because I've I've seen you talk about her in a couple of different interviews, and you know how she sort of, you know, I guess is definitely in you, right? There's there's a there's a huge connection there. Yeah, well, both of my parents are, have been, always been very, very involved in my athletic career, um, but definitely my mom has always been my number one. She she lives through the moments with me, so when I have a bad knee, you can tell she's just not in a good mood, and when I have an amazing knee, she cry, she's crying, and she's just so passionate. We're very... Um, we're very in touch into our feelings and and our emotions as as the way I was raised and I love the fact that you know my parents have never ever let me give up and I owe that all to my mom and dad because anytime I would say no they would be like I don't know what no means that's not a no in a dictionary so it's really been something that you know never give up never give in and never take no for an answer has been the mentality I've been raised upon so without my mom and without her pushing me um, and picking me back up tons of times with injuries and um, off the track issues with ex-boyfriends and stuff she's really always been there even if I've been mean to her and I owe, owe her really all my career to her and my coaches and the people that I love the most that that are my family and my number one. Alicia Newman, Canadian record holder for pole vault jumping here, 4.75 meters. Uh, Alicia, I'm just thinking maybe some parents are listening right now and they're wondering, well, how do I, you know, push my kid but not push too far? What's your advice on yeah. on that side? Because that's a very tricky proposition right there. Yeah, if I have, like, anything to go back is, like, let your kids, number one, fail as much as possible. Turn that, like, failure into a good thing, into a lesson. Really let them know that when you fail, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not negative. Um, and another thing was my mom put me in every single sport. Um, she was throwing me in tap dancing, hockey, soccer, baseball. Um, I even did um, piano and singing lessons. But the moment that I was in gymnastics, she saw, like, I didn't want to leave. So you can really, if you're really in tune into your child and you can see that they don't want to leave the gymnastics gym or the hockey rink or the football, you know, really keep them in that. And then you can really tell that they'll end up developing in that. Um, I happened to get too tall and I had to retire at, at 13 from gymnastics. I got to a national level. But once I found track again, she saw that passion again. She, she put me in diving and back in track once I was done gymnastics. And you could tell I never wanted to leave the track again. So it's really listening and just watching your child's body language uh, when they're listening to the coaches, really, really being tuned on what they like. But have them try a bunch of stuff. Um, and I think you'll find if they like that. I love that answer, and it's making me think of a conversation. I'm a big tennis fan, Alicia, and I had a conversation with John McEnroe about, uh, you know, how do you how do you get kids to be a tennis thing? He's like, well, I, I tell parents all the time to have your kids play everything, and then they argue back at me and say, well, they okay, and then he's like, well, you can argue all you want. You just asked me the question, and I told you what I think you should do. But exactly. a, a lot of parents don't want to hear it. They have this idea of how it's going to go which does not serve the kid. I'm curious with the gymnastics side of it and everything that's come out about USA Gymnastics, and I'm not exactly sure how far along you got at, at before you you know, got too big, and I, I think you got hurt too, right? Um, but what, what, what was your experience like in the sport? Yeah, so I was 
Well, I definitely watched the athlete A. It was definitely a part that like made me really, er, I guess, really upset. I was like, how can someone have that power and put these young youth athletes through that? And it's one of those things that, you know, it was so proud of that mom that kept fighting for her daughter and fighting for him to go away because that was not right. But I think it's one of those things, again, is putting your child in something that you know the coaches. You go out, out of your way to make sure that the, the child feels comfortable being there. You have to have different, difficult conversations with your children about anything so that they feel comfortable coming to talk to you. And I think that's where it kind of starts. Um, and I, I obviously it's one of those things like it's so hard to speak about because you sit here and you're like, oh, I, I never wanted to put my child in something like that, but you just never know. So by having that close relationship with your children, I think it does so much more than just make them feel comfortable at home, but make them come to you about issues that they know may not be right or wrong. Having those difficult conversations is definitely something every parent should, should have with their children. Great stuff from Alicia Wright. Thank you so much for checking out the Windy City Podcast. Coming out every Monday, except this week on Tuesday. But don't tell anyone. We got it out there. Just had to get Sam Acho, uh, which that conversation happened late yesterday. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe, tell a friend, pass it along, and we'll see you next week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.